we had a picnic. I went and they were serving chicken barbecue, which most people in the Midwest would think nothing of serving a chicken barbecue, except that this is a group that has also rescued dogs from the Korean meat market. As a vegan, do you ever feel like you're living in a parallel universe, aware of things that many others don't even seem to notice, let alone acknowledge? I'm Chrissy Benson, host of the Vegan Posse podcast. We talk with vegans from around the globe who, like you, are living lives of integrity and compassion with an eye toward justice through their personal stories. You'll come to see that you're not an outlier. In fact, you're part of an entire posse of individuals who aren't just keeping the peace, they're creating it through their food choices, and beyond. You won't be saddling up, but you're in for the ride of your life. Welcome to the Vegan Posse. Hey, Posse. Looking for a fun summer beach read with a vegan twist and a deeper message that will blow your mind? Check out my novel, Marrying Myself, by me, Christine Melanie Benson, available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and everywhere else. And find out why it's been dubbed the anti-romance romance And if you would, please leave a nice review. It'll help inject veganism into the world of mainstream women's fiction. And that's a shot the world can truly use. Today, the Vegan Posse welcomes Karen Asp. Karen is an award-winning journalist and author who specializes in nutrition, fitness, diet, animals, both companion and farmed, and travel. She writes for numerous publications, including Real Simple, Better Homes and Gardens, Consumer Reports, Prevention, and Women's Health. In her spare time, she volunteers with her local animal shelter and a Golden Retriever Rescue Organization, where she rescues, transports, and fosters Goldens. An ethical vegan for 12 years, vegetarian for 20, Karen is also a vegan mentor, certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator, personal trainer, and athlete who holds world records in Nordic walking. She shares her home in Indiana with a rescue cat and two foster wins, a golden retriever lab mix and a golden retriever puppy. Karen, welcome to the Vegan Posse. Are you ready for the ride of your life? I am Chrissy. I'm honored to be here and and thanks for having me and thanks for everybody for listening. (laughs) So you and I are both graduates of Victoria Moran's Main Street Vegan Academy. What year did you go through the program? I was during the pandemic actually. So it would have been, I think we graduated in 2021. Wow. Wow. The the years are starting to blur together. (laughs) I hear you. (laughs) Um, So like me, you, you were a vegetarian for a long time before you went vegan. What spurred you to take the vegan leap? You know, Christy, for years, I mean, first of all, for, from the vegetarian side of things, I went that way for the animals and I actually was hiking in Austria for, well, at the time. And, you know, when you're hiking, over in Europe, you often hear the cowbells and you're high up in the hills and you see the cows. And um, I love talking to animals. And so it had been on my mind for a long time to give up um, red meat and meat. So when I actually met the cow whose bells I had been hearing as I was climbing up, um, I said to the cow, I 
I will never eat you or your friends again. And so that stopped the the meat side of things. But Chrissy, as you and I know, you know, there are there's more to it than just that. So it's the dairy and the cheese. And I had a lot, a lot of trouble. I would cross over back and forth from vegetarian to veganism, but then it was always the dairy and the cheese that got me. And I'd pull back into um, vegetarian. And finally, I got to a point where I really started looking into just what all is involved in the dairy industry. And that was enough, Chrissy, to make me say, I am done with all animal products. And so vegetarian now for um, 20 years and vegan for, again, I crossed that line somewhere in between there many times, but vegan for at least 12 plus years and for a solid last 12. But then before that, it was kind of crossing back and forth. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. so you had some awareness about vegan issues and then finally just definitively made that leap. That's yeah. yeah, that's interesting. I was I was a pretty clueless vegetarian. I really did not did not know about the horrors of of dairy and eggs. For me it was le first learning about the egg industry that first got me thinking along those lines. But then when I learned about the dairy industry, in fact I was just talking to somebody about this last night just about how the dairy industry is just so, you know, it's premised on rep rupturing the bond between mother and child, <laughs> you know, this bond that we claim to revere and hold so sacred. And we've got a whole, a whole institution that's based on, you know, complete abomination of that bond. It's, I'm laughing, but it's just horrific. When you were, when you were describing the story of, of talking to that cow with the cowbell, it just was making me tear up a little bit just because it's, yeah, it's it's so sad what we do to these animals, um, but it's it's great that we don't have to do it anymore, at least on a personal level. It's not necessary at all. And Chrissy, back to the dairy comments. I mean, that's the question that most people ask is, well, why can't you eat dairy? Because a lot of people don't really understand what's happening in the dairy industry. They don't think that animals are killed for anything. You know, you're just taking the milk from the cow, but they don't realize that the cow wasn't supposed to be having that milk. I mean, it's, you know, the right. cows are artificially insane, just all the stuff that happens. And, you know, for a lot of people, even vegetarians, I meet Chrissy and, and that was me for a long time too. I was like, well, dairy's not really doing anything to the animals. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then you wake up and you realize that it's one of the worst industries for abuse of the animals. I mean, all of them are abused. Um, but, you know, we often talk about dairy cows being some of the most abused. Um, and so, yeah, it, it's just, it, it takes a little bit. And right now it's fantastic because in this world, uh, we, you know, when you and I switched, it wasn't as easy to make that switch because there weren't as many, you know, non-dairy milks, for instance, on the market. There weren't non-dairy creamers, if you like creamer in your coffee or something like that. So now it's so easy to dump it. And that's one of the first right. things I let's dump the dairy first. And that's easy. <laughs> right, right. That's a great point. And in fact, now doing doing the math in my head, we went vegan around the same time. I think I went, I went vegan in 2011. So yeah. it's coming yeah. up on coming up on 12 years. You're, you're <laughs> a few months ahead of me. <laughs> but that's interesting. Yeah, I don't know if you know, but I had a novel come out last year that features a vegan protagonist. 
And so I, definitely talk about dairy <laughs> a, a little bit. I was gonna say, and it's on, it's on my reading list. So. <laughs> all right. All right. As is your book. I just bought your, <laughs> one of your books on Kindle. Um, right. So it's been delivered. I just haven't, <laughs> haven't had a chance to look at it yet. Um, so tell me what it's like being a vegan in Indiana where you live. Yeah, Chrissy. Well, I mean, like everywhere in the country, um, I think that you can go really almost anywhere and be vegan. Here in Indiana, it's taken us a long time, just like with every other trend that hits. I don't want to say veganism is a trend, but like every other um, rage or popular thing that happens, and I speak, for instance, of fitness uh, activities, they usually start on the each coast. So it's usually West Coast, East Coast, and then gradually over the years, they move into the Midwest. So the Midwest has been a little bit slower to adapt. And I would say that from all of the traveling I've done, Chrissy, this it's um it's a less it, it, it's not hard to find vegan food here in the restaurants by any stretch of the imagination. It's much, much easier. But there's a less there's probably less acceptance of it around here just because I think people are so in, uh, uh, enmeshed in what they've always grown up. And here in the Midwest, you know, it's very, it's a very meat heavy, it's a standard American diet. So it's very meat heavy, very, you know, uh, all that sort of thing. So I, I think people really struggle to understand how they could shift to veganism, but it's definitely there are a lot of voices coming from Indiana now. And I think that the more that all of us get out there, no matter where you live and, you know, order up vegan food or, you know, show people how it, how easy it is to be vegan. Um, it, it will get easier. But that being said, we're, we're never one of like the top States for, for vegans. So, but we're getting well, there. We're, we're getting yeah. You'll, you'll get them there. Um, <laughs> well, Indiana is also where a lot of farmed animals are raised, right? That's the, the impression I have, at least. I don't know that for a fact, yeah. but I have the impression of Indiana as farmland and cows and pigs and chickens. Yes, Chrissy. In fact, I mean, we see, um, we have um, a lot of dairy um, farms, kind of, I would say within 30 to 45 minutes of me, if you cross over into Ohio, um, I'm sitting right on the border. There are a lot there. We have, I mean, it's, it is not uncommon to be on our highway where I live. It's a, it's a sprawled out city. We're the second largest city in Indiana, but it's still spread over. So when you're on the highway going from, you know, say north to south, south to north, east to west, whatever, it's not uncommon to see trucks with, you know, filled with pigs and things like that. Um, mm. You know, we also had a, a like that a dairy um, uh, farm that had the recent burning of almost, I think I'm hearing now the numbers of almost 20,000 cows. We recently had a chicken farm that went up in flames. Um, I'm sorry, actually, it wasn't up in flames. It was a tornado that hit and then spawned a fire. Um, so 40,000 um, chickens were killed. So, yes, we do have a lot of farming around here, but also farming of plants and things like that too. So, right. Right. And have you been able to find vegan community there in your neck of the woods? 
Yes, Chrissy. I mean, we have, um, there is a, there is an active community here. So there's like in other places, there's a Facebook group meetup, a Facebook group here. Um, we actually helped organize in 2018. This is a while ago now. This was pre-pandemic and everything, but the first Veg Fest here. So there, there are individuals here. It's just, you do have to seek them out, obviously, but they, mm -hmm. they exist. So yeah. Is that part of what drew you to Victoria Moran's course and becoming a certified vegan lifestyle coach and educator? You know, Chrissy, it is something that I've wanted. I had wanted to do for many, many years. I mean, it was on my list of things to do for ages. And part of the issue was just always the traveling to New York City, because right. for many of you who may or may not know about the um, certification. It takes place usually in person in New York City, but in recent times, it's it's gone on virtually. And although I used to travel a lot for work and for my career and would often be in New York City three or four times a year, I didn't have, I think it ran like a full five days and I just never had the time that I could commit to that. So when it went virtual, it was a good opportunity for me to do it then. Um, and it was simply because I wanted to add it to my list of credentials. But again, Chrissy, it had been a long time. I had been telling Victoria for years that I was going to mm -hmm. do it. Finally, I did it. <laughs> awesome. And how was it? I loved it. I mean, it was, you know, again, it was strengthened a lot of what I already knew, added to, you know, added to my base of knowledge, certainly, Chrissy. And you know, through the class, we also got to meet each other. There were, uh, you know, 30 some odd of us in class. So oh, wow. had, yeah, so you had that community to go through everything with. And of course, I mean, Victoria is just such an amazing individual that having the opportunity yes. to study with her and also, you know, get her insights is an amazing treat to have. So, and I'm sure you found the same thing. Yes, I totally agree. Totally agree. In fact, Victoria was on, on this podcast a few months ago and I was just reminded of what an incredible person she is. I mean, she has been on this animal issue since she was a babe <laughs> and she's just never stopped. Yes. So, so tell me a little bit about your path. You're a journalist and a writer. How long have you been writing? Well, Chrissy, I mean, honestly, ever since I was little, um, I mean, I would pen stories and all that good stuff. Um, and I, you know, studied journalism in college. And, you know, when I was little, I told people the only thing I wanted to do was either be the next, now this will date me. So I was into <laughs> but I wanted to be the next Nadia Comaneci. Um, but I was, I mean, that was not She's my a thing. Gymnast, so like, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> See, I'm dating myself too. Yeah. Yes. No, she was a gymnast when I was like a kid. And, um, anyway, I didn't have the gymnastic skills. I have no idea why I wanted to even <laughs> think that I wanted to write. And so, yes, yeah, so I've been writing ever since I was little, studied it in college, um, did advertising after college. And then, um, but I always wanted to write for the magazines and, it, that's kind of a dying breed right now, but, um, you know, I was also at the time, Chrissy, I was very big into fitness. So I was teaching and training and 
um, just doing a lot, a lot of fitness things. And I went off on my own for freelance writing and decided that I would specialize in fitness, health, and nutrition, which made sense because I'm a certified personal trainer, a fitness instructor. I've taught everything wow. from skiing to step to you name it. I'm not teaching fitness anymore. I still have all of my certifications, but um, yeah. So I wanted to write, I would, I remember going, you know, when I, my husband and I were, you know, starting to travel and things like that, I'd go into the airports. I'm like, oh, I just want to be in all of these magazines that are on the bookstores, you know, the, the airport store stands. I don't know why that was a big thing. You could find them <laughs> in bookstores too, but anyway, so yeah, I started, um, you know, just pitching out and, uh, you know, one took me shape was the first one for those of you who remember when shape was actually a print magazine, not just a, a mm. digital creation. Um, that was the first one who took that took me. And from there, it just, what was your first, um, article about? Oh, Chrissy, now you're really testing me. <laughs> study that came out. And I think I'm going to have to go back and look after we talk, but that won't matter now, but it was a study <laughs> that was on, um, a form of emotional eating, uh, that had come out and it was kind of new and it was kind of breaking. And I remember that I had been in touch with that study author for something beforehand. And the funny thing is, is at the time, Chrissy, my, um, I was actually on the road for, I was doing some advertising work. And so I had to be down at a client's office, like two hours away. And anyway, I didn't get home until seven that night. My husband was there at home first. And he said, listen to the, now again, dating me, listen to the answering machine. Mm -hmm. I hope you all know what answering machines are these days, mm -hmm. but anyway, there was a message on there from shape and Chris, my husband was like, you've got to go listen to the answer. <laughs> that was the editor saying, Hey, Karen, we'd love to, you know, to have you cover this story. And from there, literally Chrissy wants that one door open. So throughout the years, I've been, you know, a fitness columnist at Allure magazine. I was a contributing editor at Women's Day. I had a column for Better Homes and Gardens. Um, you know, now I'm, uh, you know, a, a digital writer or contributing writer for Veg News. I was just the contributing health editor for The Beat, which is kind of undergoing some changes. But, you know, so yes, yeah, so I love, love, love writing. And the more I can write about, you know, the health, fitness and nutrition and plant-based eating, the better. Yeah. What, what are your favorite topics to write about? Do you sometimes really feel like there it's always the same thing that people are asking you to write, or are you able to innovate? You can, I mean, you can innovate, Chrissy. I mean, I say that they fall kind of under those general categories. So it would be anything in the realm of fitness, nutrition, uh, health, and that health could uh, generally women's health, but men's health as well. Um, I also cover animals. So that would be companion animals or farmed animals. And then there's some travel there. So really it's anything among all of those categories. And I think the, the, the ones that really move me are the ones that speak directly to my heart about veganism, um, about, you know, plant-based eating of some sort. It's, it's taken the mainstream media a little bit of time to accept the word vegan. And I know that for a lot of people hearing that word is still kind of a little triggering for them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so Christy, I mean, it's been interesting because when I, you know, even when I describe my diet or how I eat, I don't, it's not a diet per se, mm -hmm. but how I eat, I like to say that I follow a, um, plant only diet and a vegan lifestyle. Mm -hmm. um, so in that way, I kind of separate the two, but when I'm, you know, of course out, it's easier just to say I'm a vegan and what right. vegan options I have here. So, um, yeah. so really, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's funny. It's funny. I mean, as a 
As a writer, I'm sure you're also very interested in words. And it's so funny, the connotations that different words have. have. I remember reading some sort of study about people's impression of the word vegan as compared to the word vegetarian. (laughs) And people had, according to this study, people had a positive impression of the word vegetarian but negative impression of the word vegan. And I feel like even just the sound of the words are very different. Vegetarian kind of flows and is melodic and softer, whereas vegan just sounds kind of grating and harsh. Um, so it's, yeah, I think, and I think, you know, again, when I, you, you kind of have to judge the audience sometimes. Right. To- to whom you're talking. So, you know, oftentimes I'll say vegan, but if it's not, if it, if I think it's going to maybe be a little, which is just odd, why it would be offensive. I don't know, but <laughs> people have the idea that you're the, the crazy activist vegan lady who is going to just rip me apart. <laughs> well, you know, it, it, it is interesting. Yeah. Although I will say that when we talk about words mattering, you know, the term plant-based has become also so watered down, Chrissy, that I almost hate using it these days without inserting a few words in front of it, like mm. whole food plant-based. And I know that that's a Dr. Colin Campbell thing, but again, in my articles, when I write plant-based, it's like, what does that even mean anymore? Are you 50% plant-based? Are you (laughs) 71% plant-based? Are you 14% plant-based? If you just eat one salad a week, are you plant-based? Right, right. Yeah. People don't know what these terms are supposed to mean. And people have their own private definitions, even of the words vegetarian and vegan. Someone was telling me last night about how, about meeting somebody who said he was a vegetarian and then they went out to dinner and he ordered a hamburger (laughs) and she said what what are you doing and he said oh well I eat vegetarian around my daughter but when I'm not with her you know I eat I need to get some protein when I'm not around her well Christy I remember even I went out to dinner um one night at just a local restaurant and it was a place that didn't have vegan options on the menu but they the chef came out and said, I'd like to create something for you. And his comment or his question to me was so unusual. And it was, are you a strict vegan? <laughs> and I looked at him, I go, I'm not, can you explain what you mean? Because I'm, a vegan. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure. And he goes, well, I've had some vegans in the restaurant who will eat chicken and chicken broth and things like that. I'm like, well, let's really follow along. So I guess if your yep. definition of strict vegan is eating no animal products. And I am <laughs> definitely not only a vegan, but I'm a strict vegan. <laughs> I I remember encountering that term as well. I think it was, I was in the online dating world and on one of the dating sites, I think it was on OkCupid, they have a section where you can describe your, your food preferences and yeah, strict, strictly vegan or strict vegan was one of the categories. And I remember talking about it with one of my vegan friends saying to me, just vegan and strictly vegan are the same. Like if you occasionally <laughs> eat chicken broth and chicken, then you're, you're not only not a strict vegan, you're not a vegan, right. but yeah, it, it's, it's hilarious. People are hilarious. <laughs> It is interesting. I mean, when you hear, when you listen with our, you know, again, with our perspective, you hear things from such a different angle that you're just like, 
yeah. what that person said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Agreed. So tell me this. I'm curious. Have you ever turned down a writing assignment or felt morally conflicted about a topic you were asked to write about that maybe was pro animal products? Yes. Really? So I, I have, because I work with, again, Chrissy, a lot of the, you know, the mainstream publications and it's been easier, like I said, to focus on insert the word vegan, even into my articles. I mean, I would say even just five years ago, eight years ago, it was very difficult for me to put the word vegan into an article I was writing for, let's say, O Magazine or Eating Well Magazine. Now, both of those no longer have print issues either. So again, we're talking about wow. <laughs> but But what I'm saying is that it was much more difficult. Now it's easier. But on that same hand, I have had to turn down assignments because they have been pro- animal um so the assignment letter might you know and it's it's a give and take in my industry chrissy so not only do i pitch ideas to my editors but they'll come to me with assignments and say karen can you handle xyz and you always have the option of of saying yes or no and in some cases it's just been you know one for instance came aboard recently that was um we'd like to explain to readers why an egg a day is okay and you know the health benefits of eggs and i i had to turn it down because there's no way that i could i mean just the science doesn't support it but there's no way <laughs> right. morally or or ethically that I could support having my name on that. And in fact, there have been a few instances even where, you know, one of the things with being a professional writer is that although you do control a large part of what goes into the article, I mean, it is your writing after all, it is your byline on it, but it goes through an editing process. And for most of the publications, they don't, let, I don't want to say let, but part of the process is not getting the final copy into the journalist's hands. So I don't usually ever see what's, what's published until it's published. And there have been, um, especially online, it's easier print. You can't do this, but there was one, actually two that I can think of in the past five years where I wrote the piece and maybe it was on, I think one of them was on like vitamin D. It, it mentioned vitamin D and sources of vitamin D. And I didn't include the animal products. Um, we, you know, I focused on all the other stuff. Well, the article comes out and all the animal products are in there. And <laughs> I actually went to my editor because it appeared both in print and digital and said, I know we can't change the print side, but I can't have my name be on it on the digital side and had to explain things, but she was extremely understanding and took my byline off. Wow. Wow. So it's, it's a weird, it's a weird thing because again, Chrissy in this whole, as you all know, in this whole society, vegans are such a minority. I mean, we are such a minority still. And all the more people are moving toward the word I hate, but I'm going to say plant-based, uh, you know, they're moving toward eating more plants, let's say, and less animals. There are still so few vegans out there. And so to find a, you know, a vegan in any field is, is, is tough. So as one of the few vegans in the mainstream media, 
in the in the in the markets that I circulate in, it's it's tough sometimes. Right. I mean, just just being a freelance writer in general sounds like such a hustle. <laughs> how has that how has that been for you? It's interesting because it's changed significantly since the start of the pandemic. And hmm. I, you know, there are a, a couple of things that have changed, and probably readers who may have loved getting their magazines in the mail will will relate with this because a lot of magazines have fallen by the wayside. And I'm talking about print. So there are, you know, a lot of the print magazines, like I mentioned, like, oh, health, eating well, all of those are done in print editions. They're now wow. publishing digital only. That's a whole different ballgame. So that's changed. Um, and I, I think a lot of it too, Chrissy, is because our readership has changed. I mean, if you think about how we've changed our overall viewing habits, most of us are now on screens. It's rare to find people now reading anything. Yes, you might find a newspaper reader, but even that's rare. You might find some magazine readers. But again, as a result of what we've been going through, we've really shifted to more of an online presence. So the digital reading has really increased. And so that's great because there are a lot of a lot more publications that have now sprung up as a result. But it's a very different form of writing digitally versus print. And so just the whole dynamics of the freelance world for me have shifted. Again, when I used to think about all of the magazines I would write for way back in the day. And again, I can cite at least 15 of them that are gone, 15, 20 wow. of them probably. Wow. And so, but but what has happened, and perhaps readers have seen this as well, is when you go to your if you're not getting the subscription still, if you go to your grocery store and you're stuck in line and you're you know, looking at the magazine rack, you'll see a lot of what we call now single title magazines. And so these are kind of like a forks over knives in that they come out maybe once a year, twice a year, four times a year, whatever. They're only out that certain amount. They're out for maybe a few months. That's it. You gotta pay a higher price for them. But they're special interest publications that really capture the interest of the reader. And so those are on the rise. And from what I'm hearing, they are doing very, very well. Um, and there have been, I will say, Chrissy, the good news is that there have been a lot more magazines focusing on the Mediterranean diet, which is good because that is a <laughs> plant forward diet, not <laughs> right. but it, it it is plant forward. So we're talking about less animals. So but it's, it's definitely a different world for journalists these days. And it's a different working environment. Everything is, everything is faster, shorter lead times, sources mm -hmm. are tough to get on the phone. So it's been challenging. Yeah. And you associate that shift with the pandemic or was that timing just coincidental? No, Chrissy, I think that the pandemic really hit us. And I, there was one other shift. Again, I've been in this business for a long time after 911. Uh, the other shift was was then we had a lot of the print magazines mm. that didn't know if they were going to make it because of advertisers. A lot of the magazine industry in the U.S. is driven, except for the magazines I just mentioned, the single title. They're driven by advertisers mm. and advertisers started pulling out of the magazines at the time. Now that changed, stabilized, but the pandemic has really, really shifted. I, I 
I would say I credit most of the shift in the magazine world, the journalism world to, again, the pandemic and what we've been going through. Um, and That's, I don't, yeah. yeah. That's fascinating. I, what, what do you attribute that link to? Is it just that people, people were at home and just weren't out buying print copies of things or what? I'm, I'm trying to specifically yeah. tie it together in my head. I think that um, advertisers, first of all, saw that there was a greater way to reach people and the greater way to reach people wasn't through a print magazine. It was through their computer screen. Mm -hmm. Why invest thousands of dollars into a magazine that maybe they're not reading anymore um, and instead, you know, shift over to the digital side of things. If you look even at, you know, I point to airlines, for instance, Chrissy, that right before the pandemic. And I used to write for many of the airline publications. Mm. You know, you would get into a plane and you'd have your, I don't know how many people actually read it, but I did have people who would find my articles and email me and say, oh my gosh, I saw your piece. On <laughs> That's Dad. cool. But, you know, you would walk in, you would sit down and there would be a magazine. Well, the pandemic stripped all those magazines away. They totally disappeared. So I think that, again, the advertising shift because of the change, everybody's at home, they're on their screens. And still to this point, I think that we're still seeing, you know, that shift. People are more apt. That was always happening. Don't, you know, the yeah. wasn't, wasn't the reason that everybody shifted. That had been shifting for a long time. But I think that the the events of the last few years just drove it home even further. That's really interesting. And that makes sense. Also with just metadata and advertising information, you know, it's, there's so much more information that can be garnered digitally rather than from somebody flipping okay. through a magazine. It's kind of hard to. Yeah. And by the time that a magazine comes out, especially if you're reporting now, again, many of the magazines would have, you know, small little blurbs in the front talking about the newest study, the newest this. Well, by the time that the magazine comes out, We've always had that problem in that there's that gap between the time that the article goes to print or is finished and then goes to print and then the magazine comes out. By then it's especially in today's day and age where you can get news everywhere. I mean, you don't have to be a journalist anymore to find out about these break-in studies that are coming out. Right. You, you can be a digital reader and find out stuff. So I think that yeah. also probably kind of took some of the wind out of the sales of the magazines. <laughs> right, right. That makes total sense. Um, So you mentioned your husband. Is he also a vegan? He is not. And that, that has been interesting, Chrissy. I will say that he's probably, here's where I will go with he's my- He's not strictly vegan. <laughs> he is not strictly vegan. And he is, I would say, 95% plant forward. And <laughs> I get, so I like that term plant forward. I, I'm going to use that. That's a good one. So I, so it, what, what has been interesting is that because of me, obviously he has shifted and, and it, it got to a head, Chrissy, there's only two of us in the family. We don't have children. We have a lot of fur kids, but <laughs> F-O-U-R, I mean, F-U-R, yes. um, fur kids. Um, But, you know, there was a point where when I switched over completely and said, absolutely no more. I had already stopped bringing animal products largely into the house, but my husband still would say, oh, you know, I really want the, the chicken dish or whatever that you used to make. And so I would do dual cooking. I would cook mine. And wow. I would cook He's not at all a, 
he has no interest in the kitchen, which is kind of a shame, but no interest in the kitchen. And I had taken over cooking years ago when as a fitness professional, we were in the let's eat clean phase, which is before I became vegan or vegetarian, it was let's choose, you know, fat free turkey instead of the, uh, anyway, that was a different era. <laughs> right. He, um, so anyway, through all of that, it, it finally, Chrissy, it got to a head where I just said, I can't, I can't even, I can't touch the animals. I can't have them at all. Like, please, if you're going to be at home, you and eating with me, you're going to have to either make your food or eat what I eat mm. that started encouraging him. And then it, it's been years, years and years and years ago, but one I've always encouraged people, Chrissy, to try to maybe start with that meatless Monday as a starting point, like, don't let that be your end point. That's your start mm -hmm. point. Monday, think about taking animals off your plate, do it for a few weeks, add a Tuesday, add a Friday, whatever works. He gave that, I don't want to say he gave that to me, but he gave me the gift of saying, Karen, for the next year, I will do meatless Monday for a year. And so that started it. And then the more he heard me talk about the health things, so he's, like I said, he, he will eat a little bit of fish when he's on a business dinner, because again, for him, it's not so much, I think it's harder for him to say, I don't want any, you know, no mm -hmm. animals, nothing. Um, it's, it's harder for him to, to do that. So yeah, but he's all, I'm so proud of where he's come though come from Chrissy. Cause I, you know, again, he's, we are a hundred percent, it's a hundred percent vegan in my house. So there's no animal mm -hmm. problem at all. Um, so he's all vegan here. And the interesting thing is when we were, you know, back, back in 2020, when we had the, you know, six weeks or whatever, where we were, um, you know, his office shut down, mine was still going because I was working from home anyway, mm -hmm. but he didn't have an office to go to. So he was home for that six weeks. He ate entirely everything that I ate, um, which is, you know, he ate, he eats most of the food here anyway, or most meals here anyway, except for lunches. Um, but he would mainly choose like Panera salads and, you know, vegan soups at Panera. So anyway, it wasn't that big of a deal, but he noticed that, he wasn't overweight, but he got even like leaner. Mm -hmm. And when he started seeing friends, they're like, what did you do? And Chris is like, I've been stuck home with Karen. for <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. So it was the opposite of whatever they call it, the pandemic 30 or yeah. <laughs> that. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> and, and it sounds like you guys had been married for quite some time before you went vegan. Is yeah. that right? It, yes, Chrissy. So even, you know, I remember kind of announcing it and I don't mean like it wasn't, <laughs> it wasn't a day that I chose. It was just, um, I had already been vegan and my husband knew, but I had to tell him, I don't mean tell him, but I had to, you know, you just, I, I just wanted to, our favorite thing, Chrissy, this is the biggest thing. Our favorite thing to do when we traveled was to, we don't like food waste. So we try not to order too much. We try to eat what we, what we need. I don't even like taking, I mean, I love leftovers, but I don't like all the packaging and stuff. So we try mm. to not over order if we had leftovers and we had a fridge in our hotel room or whatever, or we would often find a, a homeless individual to give that meal to. But our favorite thing was ordering cheese pizza, splitting it in the salad. And as soon as I, this is the back in the day when the only pizza you could get would be like a cheeseless pizza. And I got to tell you, I have suffered through, I love pizza, but cheeseless pizza wasn't always the best. 
I yeah. like it. I actually like it, but I, I get that it's definitely not yeah. the same as a cheese pizza. <laughs> yeah, no. Well, Christine, I think at the time too, there were, I mean, it just was a different era and yes, the pizza makers sure. to having somebody strip the cheese off the pizza. And so they were like, mm, I don't know how to make a pizza without <laughs> So it, it was just different. So breaking it to him, I don't want to say bringing it, but deciding that was tough. And then, you know, telling my family was, you know, that we're unstopping all traditions that we would mm-hmm. have. Well, I find that so interesting. And obviously it's a testament to, you know, your, your bond as a couple that you've navigated this successfully. And it sounds like really have come a long way together as a couple, because I, that's, I, I talk to a lot of people, you know, women, especially who have to deal with that in their romantic relationships. And especially if it's somebody that you had this longstanding connection with long before you went vegan, you know, it's not really fair to suddenly expect somebody to make this shift that you yourself hadn't made until just this very second. So I love hearing these stories of how people navigate that. It's, It's, was it ever tough? you know, working that out? For sure. I mean, and I think it, it wasn't because we have a great relationship. So, you know, we're, we're, we talk through things and all of that, but I think the hardest thing Chrissy was for me to accept that I am, you can come into veganism for many, many different reasons we know. So if animals aren't your thing, which they'll still benefit if you go vegan, maybe you're doing it for right. your health. That's certainly a reason to stay in it. And it's why I'm also in it as well. But environmental reasons, there's social injustice reasons, all sorts of things. But for me, being vegan for the animals was my number one reason. And to see, my rule was, is that no meat, no animal products in the house after we got through the, you know, I'm not going to cook animal products. You've got to eat what I'm eating. Once we got to that point, it was an agreement that you can when we go out, which we would go out for dinner on Friday and Saturday nights, or of course, when we traveled, you can eat animal products. Then it's not in my kitchen. When he was starting, when we first started on that agreement, it, Chrissy was hard for me to accept when I would see him order, let's say a steak. Mm. He didn't do very much of it. And I would say that steak wasn't his go-to by any stretch of the imagination, but it still was ordered. He ordered it. And I had a tougher time accepting that. It wasn't something that he was, it it, it just, for me more, just in my head, all I saw was the animal on the plate, the animal who, who used to be on, you know, in that, around that, that meat. And I just couldn't get the image out of my head. And he picked up on that after a while. He just said, you know, I, I'll, I won't eat meat in front of you anymore. Um, so that was another good way to kind of handle yeah. things. But, but it is difficult, Chrissy. I mean, I was a, a vegan mentor with PETA for a long time. And, you know, I had many, many of my, my mentees who had relationships. And it was very difficult, um, you know, if they were just dating, for instance, you know, and they wanted to be vegan and to find vegans to date. It's that presents an issue. It presents an issue if you're in a relationship already and you don't want to end the relationship, Yeah. yeah. Uh, but you want to stay vegan, but you want, 
It's very hard and, and you can't make somebody change. What I know from fitness and everything from being a trainer, you can't make somebody change. You can be the role model for that individual and you can parlay information in a very tactful way <laughs> to that individual. But now my husband, um, Christy, is an optometrist. And it's funny because he laughs at how much, I don't want to say laughs, but he's like, do you know how much we like how much fruit and vegetables like are in our refrigerator. So do you know how much like you, we have a lot of, lot of like greens. So I'm always making things with leafy greens. Well, what do we know? He's an optometrist. We know that leafy greens are great for the eyes. So now his whole thing is telling people, you know, his patients about eating leafy greens. And what's even more interesting, Christy, is that there was a conference that he was at for, uh, you know, for um, optometrists and I was just hanging out with him and doing my own thing and he texts me and he says Karen you've got to come to the expo hall you know there's this test I want you to take okay so I went <laughs> it's Chrissy it's to test from your your risk for macular degeneration which is a common eye issue as we as we all age, and I'm not the optometrist here, but I can certainly tell you that <laughs> oh, he sees a lot of them. And yeah. it was really testing to see like just what your risk is. It, it's not a test that my husband would say is, you know, 100% accurate, but anyway, it's interesting. So he had me take the test and I scored extremely low on the risk factor. Interesting. And the, the interesting thing is that the tester afterward, Chris had already told my husband had already told them about my diet and said, what's really interesting is that the only people I see score this low are vegetarians and vegans. Very interesting. Okay. That's, so, I'm going to file that away. I'm curious to take the test. Number one, because my mom has, you know, she has the beginnings of macular degeneration and I keep urging her to yeah. eat, eat more leafy greens, eat the, um, the berries, there was a particular sort of berry that I think at one point was being <laughs> raved about in terms of helping the eyes in that respect. So that's very, very interesting. So it's definitely in my genetic history. I think my grandmother had it as well. Yeah, um, but it's just, I mean, again, we know that plants can do so much for the body. And, right. you know, when you think about it, we hear so much about the heart, you know, heart health, we hear about brain health, we hear about just so many things. And you forget that your eyes, you know, also have, you know, they're taking in nutrients as well. And I'll just, one more thing, this, this is purely anecdotal. This is not a <laughs> study by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm, you know, over 50 by 45, my husband and my, my vision, um, I'm nearsighted, but my vision would be enough that by now I should be in reading glasses. So my husband's always like, by about the age of 45, you should be in reading glasses. Well, I'm well past 45, um, eight years past 45, and I do not yet need reading glasses. And Chris is my husband's only thing. He goes, you know, it, he's like, I don't know why you're breaking the trend here. He's like, <laughs> I'm getting to a point where I do need the reading glasses. But he's thinking that it has something to do with all of the antioxidants that I'm pulling in from the fruits and the vegetables and the whole grains and the 
you know, the beans, legumes, all that and the diet. So, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm the same way. I think we're, we may be exactly the same age. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be 54 in September. So I'm 53. Um, yeah, I'm not wearing glasses of any sort. My vision definitely, I definitely have noticed some, <laughs> some deterioration in my vision. Um, I won't say it's, it's perfect, but yeah, no, no reading glasses for me, at least, right. at least for now. Um, so what, what different dietary approaches did you try as a vegan? Did you go immediately to the whole food plant-based or as you say, plant exclusive yeah, Chrissy. I mean, I did um, because I, I was again following more. So I did it for the animals. The entry point was the animals. The second entry point for me was the health aspect of it. And that's really why I started, you know, ages ago cooking, even though I look back at what I was cooking, thinking it was healthy. And at the time I thought it was healthy, but it wasn't. But anyway, I went, I started cooking to basically be a control freak and control what my husband and I were eating. And so um, it was, wait, I forget what you asked me. <laughs> um, if you went immediately to whole food plant-based. Oh, right, right, right. So yes. So when I switched over to um, 100% vegan, um, I went with the whole food plant-only approach um, to start. Now, since then, Christy, I will say that it's been somewhat fun to experiment. And in my career, I get a lot of, you know, inquiries, media inquiries and things like that. So I get a lot of, I'm very grateful for this, but I get a lot of products sent to me and for certain articles, you know, I have to test products and things like that, <laughs> which has been fun. And actually it's been a great way to introduce these products to let's say our meat eating friends or my relatives who still eat meat who are like, I can't believe that's not chicken when, you know, it's vegan chicken or something. And it's in a dish that they would typically associate um, with chicken. So I, I still am mainly, again, that whole food plant, plant only part of it. But that certainly doesn't mean that I don't eat the vegan, the vegan, the, the quote unquote vegan food. Right. Um, right. Yeah. yeah. Me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah. For me, it was interesting because same as you, it was about the animals. That's why I made the change. I, but I, I had always had what I considered a totally separate interest in health and fitness and nutrition. And so it was a revelation to me that those totally aligned and intersected. I was, right. you know, in, in hindsight, it seems so obvious, you know, just, um, an intuitive level. How could these products of horrific suffering and cruelty, how could they possibly be wholesome for my body? Um, but I, same as you, I thought that non-fat dairy and <laughs> lean, so-called lean meat <laughs> were good for you. I, I even felt a little bit guilty that I didn't use oil. I always felt like, oh, it would probably be good for me to, you know, incorporate some oil into my diet. So for me, it was a relief when I watched the documentary Forks Over Knives and found out, oh, oil is actually harmful to your endothelium and oil is actually not something that we should be, you know, using at all if possible. So that exactly. was a revelation for me. Um, so I know you're a fan, you're a fan of lists. Did you make any lists when you went vegan? Oh gosh, you know, Chrissy, I should have, right? I used to, <laughs> well, 
do. I mean, I have a life list that I actually need to pull back on and see where I am on that. But um, I mean, I, I did not make vegan lists, although I still, I do have, although I'd have to look at it right now, I do have a list of restaurants that I kind of keep that I want to hit, the vegan restaurants um, that I want to hit and things like that. But um, no, I mean, I still do lists though. I mean, I'm, <laughs> my, it, it's a daily to-do list. So I'm one of those individuals and it's a, yes. <laughs> you know, things I want to accomplish in the future list. So uh, yeah, yeah, great. Lists yeah. are, lists are amazing. They um, help. I will say they help at the grocery store too. So Yes. Although I always forget to bring them and I pretty much buy the same things all the time at the grocery store. So <laughs> I don't really, well, it's, a good, it's a good test of memory. If you've written yes. it, you've forgotten it, and then you try to recall it. So yes. we're talking some brain health uh, activity there. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so you wrote a book called anti-aging hacks. Did I get the title right? You got it right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Tell me about that book. Go ahead. Yeah, it's been out a few years, Chrissy, and it was um, not designed to be a vegan book per se, but of course, when a vegan writes a book like that, it will be. (laughs) Um, So it's 248 simple, and I mean, these are so simple little tips and tricks that just help you I do not like the word anti-aging because we are that's a good point. Yeah. We're all aging. And if you're against aging, then (laughs) must mean that you're against living, which you're suicidal. Yeah. (laughs) Right. You proceed to the next step. But that was the title that was chosen by the publisher for for various reasons. But all of these tips are super simple tips that you could do in a day's time. For instance, you know, again, swapping out, let's say that the cow's milk, the for plant-based milk, and all of the stat, all of the the strategies are designed to help you age healthier, mm-hmm. um, more gracefully, with more energy, more vitality, those types of things. Because again, when we, I think we focus so much on, on quantity of aging. So, how long do you want to live until? We forget that it's not just quantity, but it's quality too. Right. And I certainly used to be at a point where I would say I'd want to live to a hundred. I don't know. I mean, that was just kind of in my always my head. Well, of course I want to live to a hundred, but I only want to live to a hundred if my quality of life is as good as my quantity of life. And certainly things will change when I'm that age, but uh I want to get there with as high a quality of life as possible. So that's what a lot of these strategies are designed to do, Chrissy. And they focus on not just, it's not just all about eating, but it's also about, let's, you know, movement, lifestyle strategies. So there's, you know, sleep strategies in there because we know that sleep is such a crucial part of, you know, that healthy overall lifestyle. There's movement um, strategies as well, because it's not just about what you eat. It's about how much you move. So yeah. What, what were some of the more surprising tips that you came up with in your research? Oh goodness. Um, I'd have to, uh, I don't want to give everything away because of course people should read the book, but if you have any tidbits you can give people that would I think, I think part of it too, is, you know, we, uh, for, for the movement side of things, we think, I think that there's a misperception that you have to go to the gym and I, you know, in air quotes, you have to go to the gym, you have to go do that 
I don't know, 45 minute spin class or 30 minute kickboxing class, whatever it is you're doing. We know, and this is what I also highlight in the book that it's, it's great to have that kind of structured activity, but you also need to be moving throughout the day. So you can't just expect to sit all day, whether behind an office desk, at a chair in front of a TV, let's say, or wherever else you're sitting and then go to the gym or go to your online you know, class and do a workout for 45 minutes and expect that you're going to get all of the benefits of that you need. So one of, you know, one of the big strategies that I, that you'll see broken out into many, many different ones is to not only get the structured activity, but also to get the movement throughout the day. And so things like taking a five minute um, movement break every, I would say every now 30 minutes, but 60 minutes, if you can do it. Um, and that gives you, if you, let's say, sit for eight hours a day, if you are at an office desk, break up five minutes times eight, you've now just done 40 minutes of activity. Right. So not it, too shabby. Right. Not too shabby at all. I mean, it's things like looking at steps, which we've always known, but how many steps do you actually need? And the science on that is, is changing um, pretty rapidly. But I always tell people, don't focus on the end, you know, on the on what people tell you, focus on what you're doing now, get your baseline and add, you know, 5%, 10% every few weeks to see if you can just get more steps. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really simple things like that, Chrissy. It's doing, um, uh, you know, putting sunscreen. I always talk about this one. This was one of my favorites, putting sunscreen every day on your face, your hands, your neck, chest, that area. It's just, and- Yeah. Just a quick question about sunscreen. Do you think there's a big difference between mineral based and the chemical sunscreens? Do you see see evidence for that or, you know, Chrissy, I would probably veer toward a dermatologist to say, I prefer the mineral based ones. And also, I also look for any sunscreen that would be uh, what they call reef safe or, you know, safe for the oceans. I don't live by an ocean. I'm in Indiana. (laughs) Yeah. Certainly anything that you put on your skin and then you take a shower is going to go somewhere into our waterways. Mm. So please look for sunscreens that are safe for the environment. Um, And those do, for me, those do tend to be a little bit more mineral-based sunscreens. Um, But yeah, so, and it's, you know, and and to that end, it's, it's doing little things like, again, stacking. I love, I'm a huge fan of stacking your habits. So when you let's say brush your teeth in the morning, if you put your sunscreen right by your toothbrush, (laughs) you can brush your teeth. That sunscreen is there as a reminder to put your sunscreen on. So you can do the two together um, at the same time. And if you do that every day, it becomes easier to make that a habit. Mm -hmm. Um, So (laughs) things like that. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. I'm a big advocate of habit as well. And regarding the exercise, I remember that was a big concern for me when I moved to Nashville from New York city, where in New York city, I'm, I'm a runner. So I have been running in the morning for, you know, decades now. So I had that block of time in the mornings, but in New York city, I was getting all kinds of peripheral exercise just by, cause you walked everywhere. So I would, yeah. you know, walk to the subway station walk from the subway station, go out for lunch and walk. And then when I moved to Nashville, 
I was kind of horrified because I quickly <laughs> realized, you know, apart from my morning run, <laughs> I'm, I'm not doing anything, you know, just outside that official exercise time. And so I realized I was going to need to figure out a way to incorporate some more movement. In my case, I stumbled onto this gadget called the desk cycle. Oh, yes. <laughs> so I had one. This was when I, now I work remotely, so I'm able to get up and down all the time and it's not as big an issue. But when I was working in an office in downtown Nashville, I had that desk cycle under my, <laughs> under my desk and I would just cycle all day long. It was amazing. And, um, I was kind of an unofficial spokesperson for that <laughs> brand because people would stop by my desk all the time and say, what is that? And I would just rave about it. <laughs> Right, right. Um, so tell me about your Nordic walking. That was something I had never heard of until I saw that in your profile. I know, right? So, <laughs> it's um, a great name. I assume it's not quite, you know, trekking to the North Pole, although maybe you've done that as well. No, no, Ellie. Um, sorry, I've got a, a barking puppy in the background. <laughs> um, Nordic walking stems from a form of dryland training. And that form of dryland training was used by cross-country skiers. And I'm just going to move here quickly, Chrissy. Um, sure, no problem. By Nordic skiers as a way to train in the summertime. Oh, okay. So that there, makes are sense. there are various ways that cross-country skiers can train in the summer. So they can, you know, use roller skis, um, things like that. But Nordic walking is just walking with specially designed poles. And you can do things like run, you can do things like leap and bound with your poles. But for the most part, Chrissy, it's literally walking with poles. And there's a way, you know, there are rules when you compete in Nordic walking in that you have certain rules you have to follow. You can't double pole as we would in cross-country skiing to like get yourself closer to a finish line or just get yourself somewhere um, up a hill or, or over a flat area, you can't also run with the poles. So mm -hmm. in competition, those are the two role, uh, two rules that we have to follow. But I mean, in training, I would run with the poles and things like that. But anyway, it's a, it's a way of walking Chrissy. That is a little bit more, um, um, it brings in a fuller part of the body than does walking or running. So with most walking and with most runners, you're typically using from your hips down, right? Mm -hmm. So there's not much, your core does have to get involved a little bit, but it's not like you're, you're using the other parts of your body as much as your legs. Um, when you use poles, you utilize some EKG studies have, or some studies on the muscle movement have shown that you use about 95% of your muscles. Wow. Your Nordic That's walking. amazing right? So it's a way to pull in the entire, almost, almost the entire body. So you're building a, a little bit more upper body strength. You're doing a lot more core strength um, with poles. And again, these are specially designed poles. So you can't just use like cross country poles, ski poles, or your downhill ski poles or whatever, or even your hiking poles. These are specially designed poles. Um, but yeah, they just, they allow you to um, use, utilize more of the muscles. There's also uh, for people um, who might have, let's say a hamstring injury, or um, maybe they have bad knees and even walking might 
irritate them. Having poles can help take some of the weight off of the body. So instead of just two, two pillars uh, on the on the ground, you've got four. So you're distributing mm. weight a little bit more. So for people with injuries, it can be a good way to get that workout in without, without impacting their body a little bit more. But what I will tell you, Chrissy, is that, so again, it was used as dryland training for cross-country skiers, but now it's, I think it still is Finland. Finland kind of was the birthplace of it. And it's now the, I think it's the official sport of Finland, the national. Really? Wow. So, How did you get yeah, it? So it can be done as, it can be done as intensely or as less you can in other <laughs> words you can start off very very low levels of intensity and it can go up to very high levels of intensity so it really suits all fitness levels and the other great thing about it is when we talk about rating of perceived exertion which i know you know as a runner you know for a lot of people we talk about rating of perceived exertion running for instance can be hard for some people cycling you know you you feel like you're really working hard the interesting thing about the poles is that even when you're working really really at a high level of intensity the rating of perceived exertion is actually lower interesting um, so you again, can kind of hack exercise almost <laughs> you can almost and again it's because you've got two extra limbs helping you yeah way. so you're distributing the workload among two poles and your and two feet so it's so really when when did you discover it how long have you been nordic walking a while chrissy so again being part of the media i'm often asked to you know by companies to try this to try that oh, uh, probably in 2008 it's been a while there was a push to get nordic walking introduced Nordic walking to Americans. And so companies from Europe came over to say, let's really get Nordic walking to be a sport. It's huge over in Europe, other countries as well. Americans, however, don't really have quite a love affair with poles. You know, we don't, we don't really <laughs> right. go trekking with poles. You know, when I was in Germany, for instance, you know, you'd see tons of people out hiking and they all had poles with them they're not huh. walking poles but we're not a pole culture here <laughs> so anyway they brought but this company brought in a few journalists um we were actually in stowe vermont and we did we had some of the canadian uh cross-country ski team with us and we did a whole weekend of just working with them working with the poles and doing all sorts of stuff um and that got me started on the poles chrissy and i took them home and i started experimenting and i heard all of the comments i mean i still to this day even though people have seen me on the trails for years i still have people who are like when's the snow you know they'll yell out their car window as I, you know, as they're passing me on the trails or something like that or I've hilarious had, yes yeah are you are you asphalt skiing that's always one of my favorite ones um but you know so I just started experimenting them he, with uh, here and I just found some competitions started competing in them got kind of good um set some world records and um yeah. yeah. What was your world record and how did that come about? So Chrissy, there was, um, I at one time held six. I think I'm down. Wow. To I think I'm down to two now because the other ones have <laughs> only two world records. I oh know right? they're all in marathon distance. Um, and wow. to, to be fair, I can run faster than I can Nordic walk. I can't fitness walk 
faster than I can Nordic walk. And I'm not, I have not officially learned how to do race walking. So a race, <laughs> a race walker could walk faster than a Nordic walker, but a Nordic walker can walk faster than a fitness walker. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Runner again, but, um, uh, yeah, so I have those two and it happened because Portland, Oregon used to have a marathon there used to be several marathons, actually, Chrissy, that were sanctioned for Nordic walking, which means that we had judges on the course like you would have with race walking. Wow. So race walkers, you know, have judges. They have certain rules they have to follow. The two rules I mentioned to you earlier, the no double polling and no running with the poles. Um, you would have judges on the courses watching you and they would be at several points along the way. And if you were disqualified, you wouldn't know until the, you know, you wouldn't know until the end. Oh, wow. But if you did any one of those two errors, um, then you're, you're DQ'd. So there were several marathons and, and half marathons running those events that were sanctioned. They've since kind of fallen by the wayside, but all of my records came from actually Portland Marathon. I would go out there almost every year and they counted halves, they counted various course lengths. Um, and so it happened there. I always had intentions of going over to compete in Europe because that's where most of my competitors are, mm -hmm. but I have yet to make it over there to actually compete. So that's amazing. So is this something you do every day? It mostly Chrissy, you could now I live in Indiana, as you all know, and Indiana winters are it's really hard to get out in Indiana winters. Um, we either have, we haven't had a lot of snow, but we have a lot of ice. Mm. And so it's just not a good scene to be out. And we also, where I live, we have really wicked wind chills. And so typically I'll move indoors. So this is primarily for me because of where I live. It's usually a spring to fall. Um, I see. That makes sense. And then in the winter time, I'll switch up, which again, from the fitness side of things, we know is a great thing anyway, just to pull in that cross training. Mm -hmm. um, but during the, you know, during the warm weather month starting like now, you'll see me on the trails frequently and I'll mix it up, Chrissy. So it's not like, unless I'm actually training for an event, will I do it, um, you know, daily, but it, right now it's just more of a, I love to cross train. So I love to do other things as well. That's so interesting. Very intriguing. Yeah. And congratulations on those world records. That's you, well, really I'm something. Touting my laurels because it's it's been a few years, but they they still stand. <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Um, so getting back to writing a little bit, um, I do you have any fiction novels or stories in mind for the future? You know, Chrissy, I typically a long time ago when I was a little girl, I wanted to be a fiction writer. And I've learned that it's just not, um, maybe I will someday, but it's just right now I'm focused entirely on the nonfiction side of things. Yeah. Yeah. So for right now, I have a few ideas that I've jotted down, but I haven't really pursued anything book wise. Um, the journalism side of things is keeping me pretty busy and sounds you know, there's like always that there's always that thing called life that interferes as well. Um, yeah. Well, it's good to have a life that interferes with things in, yes. some, in some ways, in some ways. Yeah, it is. So, but, um, but yeah, I mean, you know, the, you always kind of mull things over and, you know, like, I'm sure like with you, you've got, you know, the post-it notes that you write down and the little blurbs all over your computer that I open up a file. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. <laughs> I didn't 
where did that come from? <laughs> right. I don't remember thinking about that, but hey, apparently I, I did for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> um, so what was it like co-writing a book? I know you've co-written some books with people. Yeah. The first one that I co-wrote, Chrissy, I, um, it, it just was an interesting, I'll just say it was an interesting project. It, it was, seems hard to me. Like it, it yeah, seems difficult. I probably wouldn't do that route again, unless um, I had a little bit, uh, it, it would just depend on the situation, but the co-writing was um, definitely difficult. I was working with two physicians at the time. It was about food allergies and intolerances. This is now, you know, several years ago. So the book would need to be updated. It's very, very basic information, but you know, these are two doctors who have their own very busy schedule. So to get three mm. of them on conference calls to talk about things to, you know, they have their, it just, it was a very difficult, I had two great co-authors, so that was great, but having three mm. of us in on one book was challenging to say the least. So to merge all of the information from both sources um, was was a challenge. So I really like just doing my own. <laughs> yes. Yeah. That's I not to say that I wouldn't consider, you know, again, in the future, um, partnering if it were the right partnership. So sure. Yeah. Yeah. But. Um, well, I've got just a few more questions for you. You have such an interesting life. There are so many things I would love to ask you about, but we can save that for another time. <laughs> um, but I know you do a lot of work, rescue work with um, some organizations in your, in your town. Can you tell us about some of the stuff that you've done with these groups? Yeah, Chrissy, thanks for asking. So um, I'm fortunate enough to live in a city where we have a fantastic um, shelter, a nonprofit shelter. We have two in our city, but I work with a nonprofit one and it's called Humane Fort Wayne. And I go in weekly with my husband. It's a thing we do together to um, take care of the dogs, walk them, feed them, all that good stuff. We do outreach events. Um, we've fostered through them as well. So my first foster, which I started fostering during the pandemic, because again, I used to be on the road every, about every three weeks, um, traveling, wow. traveling for work oh. that has completely halted. So mm. It was never a good time, I thought, to foster because I was always kind of going. And anyway, I started fostering and it was through Humane Fort Wayne. I had my first foster was, I love pity mixes. Um, and so I had a pity mix and her story, she was a paralyzed pity mix. Aww. And I've never worked with a paralyzed dog before, but she came with a wheelchair from a transport in Mississippi. Aww. And I had her for 15 months and nursed her to health and um, got her ready to go to her forever home. Had she not wanted to eat our cat, she might've still been with us, but we found Aww. her an amazing home with a woman who also uses a wheelchair. And that's Aww. a story that I have in my head, but it's, I still have a relationship with Macy, who is now Juno, but I, so I do a lot with that. <laughs> um, but Humane Fort Wayne, Chrissy, the other interesting part is that we, people may remember last year in, um, in the summer, the rescue of the 4,000, almost 4,000 beagles took place. And I was one of the transporters. Our shelter agreed to take two transports of beagles and said, we can handle 25 
on each, you know, transport, 25 on the first one, 25 beagles on the second one. I was on the first transport. So I was one of the four individuals from my shelter who drove down, um, spent the night and then went to the Invigo plant the next morning and got the 25, turned out to be male beagles. Um, we transported them back to the shelter and got them um, all ready for adoption and happy to report that they all found homes. I didn't transport the second, but I was the second 25. They were all girl beagles, but I was in on taking care of them for the next nine days that they were in the shelter before getting adopted. That's just one organization. Um, and then the other organization, which is um, a statewide one, is uh, a golden retriever rescue. And it's, it's GRACE, G-R-R-A-C-E. And I do um, a lot of work with them. So I foster, I transport dogs, which is a great way to get involved with an organization too, if you don't want to foster or do anything. Um, I help again, go pull puppies um, and dogs from, we're getting a lot from puppy mills. And I also serve as a foster rep. So that means that I wow. mentor a foster and I'm basically there for questions and make sure all the mm. proper steps are being taken care of. But it's so that our fosters never have to go through the journey alone. But my two dogs that I have now, Chrissy, are actually foster wins through Grace. So um, yeah. I have what are their names? I have Ellie, who is a 10-month-old golden. Um, oh. and if you heard any barking in the background, and she's actually playing right now underneath my feet. You might <laughs> there, but she was one who came from a puppy mill and fostered her, said I would never have a puppy again because I was done with puppies. And well, turns out we adopted her. <laughs> we had already adopted. Um, my other one is Barney. He is an eight-year-old golden lab mix who came from a shelter. We pulled him from a shelter, the organization did. And we fostered him um, while we had, um, this is while my other golden retriever was alive. She passed away almost a year ago at the age mm -hmm. of 13. So, um, but oh. we adopted him and he will be nine this summer. So, ah. Yeah. Um, so where were these, the puppy mills, they were producing puppies to sell or like, were yeah. these just to go to private homes or were they for experiments yeah. or where, what was no. it? So while the, the beagles that I mentioned were going from the Invigo plant into the research world. So the Invigo plant was the breeding facility to go into lab experimentation. These puppy mills are different. These puppy mills will sell to pet stores. So there are many pet stores that still sell puppy mill puppies. And there are some cities, we're trying to hopefully get more past in Indiana, but there are some cities like Indianapolis and others around the country that have passed ordinances saying that no pet stores can sell puppy mill puppies. But these breeders are producing the puppies for sale they often front their sales with online sites. So a lot of online sites are puppy mill breeders. Mm -hmm. um, they often put signs on the side of the street, uh, of the road saying, you know, we've got golden retriever puppies for sale or German shepherd puppies for sale. That's very prevalent. Indiana where I live is a puppy mill pipeline. So wow. there are, huh loads and loads and loads of puppy mills around me. And what has happened, Chrissy, we've always had a puppy mill problem, but the pandemic has also created something 
also unusual or unique in that many, many people, the pandemic adopted animals, which is great. We need people to adopt animals um, from shelters and rescues, not puppy mills. Right, right. What happened is that a lot of people were, were buying animals from puppy mills. The puppy mills overproduced and they are still overproducing the animals, Chrissy. So we have so many so many puppies coming out of these puppy mills. We have breeding moms, breeding dads, puppies. And the sad part is, is that not only are they being sold to the stores, fortunately, a lot of the breeders, I will give them credit, are calling rescue organizations like Grace. They're calling shelters. Um, but we also have and have a lot of reports and evidence that they are also killing the dogs that are unwanted. So it's a hard, it's a hard thing for people to hear, but my girl would have probably not made it had the rescue not said we will take her. Um, mm. So it's, it's a problem in that, you know, these uh, breeders do not spay, they don't neuter. So the breeding moms and dads just continue having litter after litter after litter. Right. And it produces an overpopulation of puppy mill puppies. And it's it's a massive problem. Every rescue right now is really, really struggling with an overburden of, of puppy mill pups coming in. Wow. Oh my yeah. gosh. That's I guess I knew about some of this on some level, but it's it's different hearing about someone who has firsthand experience. Yeah, you don't you don't actually realize because you think, well, but if I'm buying a if I'm buying a puppy from a puppy mill breeder, doesn't that help the puppy? Right? That's the common question I get. And I'm right. like, well, okay, well, it helps the puppy. I mean, certainly if a if and, and by the way, Chrissy, I should mention that all of these rescues and shelters we're not buying the puppies. We are getting these puppies for, right. for free. In other words, we will not pay money for these puppies. Right. So these breeders right. are, are you know, losing. These breeders look at, at these dogs as profit. They're not, mm -hmm. they're nothing but profit. So they are losing profit when they give the puppies and the dogs to us, which we're grateful that they do. But what you don't realize is again, that question of, well, aren't I, am I helping the puppy? You're you're perpetuating the system, perpetuating the system. And what yeah. we've learned is that these puppies, many of them do great. They are awesome. I mean, some of them are just wonderful, but we do have some who come out there. They need adjusting just mm -hmm. like the beagles who were in, you know, destined for the lab world. The beagles had never felt the loving touch. A lot of these puppies do not have never felt, you know, some breeders are better than others, but some of them have never felt a loving touch. They don't know how to go, you know, live in a home. Let's say they don't know how to even go to the bathroom out. You know, you have to carry them oh. to go inside to the bathroom because they're just, they pancake flat. They're so scared. They don't know what to do oh. or they, you know, hide in a corner because they just, they've lived in a barn their whole entire life. And they, oh. It's just a very different situation. And, you know, you can have behavioral issues pop up. And if you're not addressing those issues, if you don't know how to deal with them. So yeah, Chrissy, it's, right. it's, again, it's one of those things that we like to say, really, really, really visit your, visit your local shelters, visit your rescues. You know, again, if you're looking for a purebred, because that's why a lot of people go to the puppy mill um, breeder. Right. 
And right. even if you, again, you might not, you might not intentionally go to a puppy home breeder, but we know that if you're buying a dog online for say, uh, it's probably, it's most likely a puppy mill breeder. Um, if you, Interesting. Yeah. That's good to know. know. Yeah. If you don't see, you know, if you can't go see the, the, the breeder site, if you can't meet the mom or the dad, it's probably a puppy, um, but yeah. puppy mill, but we like to say, you know, go to your shelters and rescues because we have purebred dogs. If that's what you <laughs> Right. If that's your issue. Yeah. If that's your, if that's what you're looking for, find a rescue. For instance, again, I'm hooked in with the golden retriever rescue, but there's so many different rescues. There's a rescue for yeah. almost every, every breed. And even the non-breed, you know, we know that there are pity mixes. They're, te mm -hmm. they're technically not a breed, but there are so many rescues for them too. So right. see those out first. Okay. Um, okay. Um, all right. So literally just a couple more questions because I've talked to you quite a while. Um, I wanted to ask, it seems like doing work for these rescue organizations would connect you with a lot of people who care about animals and are also vegan. Do you find that to be the case? So all, <laughs> all of these people care about the animals for sure. And I will say this, Chrissy, all of these people are fantastic. In all of the organizations I work with, I can say nothing but great things about these individuals. The interesting thing though, is that I am one of few vegans in the animal rescue world. And it's such a struggle, an ethical struggle, because for those of us who are vegan, especially for those of us who are vegan for the animals, it's hard to understand why people in animal rescue who work diligently, tirelessly, fearlessly for animals who not all of them are abused and neglected, but certainly some of them are, um, they go to such lengths to help these animals, but think nothing about putting a hamburger on their plate or ordering a roast beef sandwich, not making the connection that the animals that they just helped at the shelter or in the rescue pulled in from whatever situation were treated, you know, the, the, these animals on their plate are treated even more horrifically than the animals we see, not always the case. And we see some pretty horrific cases in the shelters and the rescues. But again, it's it's such an odd thing, Chrissy. And I, I think back, you know, I, I was not born vegan as you weren't either. Mm -hmm. I wish that I were, if I could go back and change one thing about anything, I would erase everything. Well, we were born vegan, right? We just were conditioned to not I, And Chrissy, and that's a good point. Good point indeed. But I, you know, if I could go back and do it again, I would, but I look back and at me and think, what was it that awakened my soul? It was an animal. And so it's hard to understand how their souls aren't being awakened as well. But again, we, we know, and again, it's, it's normal to eat meat, especially where I am. It's, you know, people think it's necessary. You know, it's, you have to eat meat. They don't know what else to eat. So I get, I understand where they're coming from, but if we had a picnic, I went and they were serving chicken barbecue, which most people in the Midwest would think nothing of serving a chicken barbecue. Except that this is a group that has also rescued dogs from the Korean meat markets. 